All right, so welcome back to Under the Radar, a Rolling Stones podcast about deep cuts and hot cookies. Thanks for tuning in again. Uh, you can find us on that Facebook, find us on that uh, Apple Podcasts, like and subscribe. <laughs> Doggo wants to be involved in the show. Yeah, the dog right. wants, Panda wants to be yeah. involved in the show. This is also, uh, we're recording at my place today instead of Christian's, so we're not at Chatterhand Sound. This is Pesto the Cat Official World Headquarters. Also, my partner Liz is uh, crafting. Which yeah, we're right. I'm very near a loom. Yeah. I'm the closest I've been to the to a loom in years. There's sewing machines. There's a spinning wheel. You can find her on Instagram, Pomplamoose Goods. I'm like Cinderella. I've reorganized so all my like music collection is right behind Christian. So he's sort of framed by an aura of vinyl and box sets, and it's good for the vibe of the show. I think. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm glad that there's a copy of Led Zeppelin's Coda. <laughs> The deluxe edition. Within arm's reach. <laughs> um, so we got to uh, start by prefacing this episode by saying uh, we didn't rig it, but Voodoo Lounge won the vote. Uh, we had a, an informal poll on our Facebook page to vote for the next topic we'd cover. And in this case, uh, Voodoo Lounge won by a landslide of three votes. So <laughs> we've got to dedicate this to the people who voted. It, it's a surprise to be sure, yeah. but a welcome one. I, I, I got a shout out to uh, Enrique from uh, my online forum I go on called Echoing the Sound. He liked our page specifically to vote for Voodoo Lounge. That's so thanks, Enrique. Uh, Colin up in my office. Uh, Sam Palmer over from that Rolling Stones <laughs> posting group on Facebook. So shout out to you three. Yeah, it didn't win this time, but I should also probably mention uh, Cole William Hermer. I'm oh, yeah. referring to him now as Cole William, <laughs> like we're in the Scarlet Letter. Right. But he he won he wanted Satanic Majesties, and I actually thought Satanic Majesties would win. I voted for Satanic Majesties, but uh, you know, democracy rules. So for a little while longer, anyway. <laughs> That's the world that we're still in. So there's lots to talk about here. Voodoo Lounge was a time of rebirth for the band. It was obviously the first album after uh, Bill Wyman left in 1992. I guess was his formal exit from the band. And uh, they had a hell of a time deciding what to do next. I think there was a large list of contenders for that base chair. They first had to um, get out of their solo contract obligations. And, That's uh, right. Wandering Spirit is probably Mick's best solo record. Uh, and Main Offender is just fantastic. Yeah, both of those albums are great. And I think Ronnie was doing Slide on This around oh, the same the, time. Oh, and the Slide on Live plugged in and standing, which yeah. is great. Everyone a should great get album. it. Great album, yeah. With lots of participation from Bernard on lead vocals. Yeah, Bernard Fowler tears it up. But that left the question of, well, we're, the Rolling Stones do want to reform. We do want to do a new record. We do want to enter into this multi-album deal with Virgin Records. But Bill Wyman didn't. And the Stones tried to convince him to come back. Um, but obviously Bill's life situation had changed quite dramatically in the previous years. Well, and he said he would be okay to do the tours, but he didn't want to do, you know, nine month long recording sessions. And they were like, no, it's a, it's a package deal. You have to do both. Yeah. But also he was not flying anymore. So to do a tour, they would have had to plan around him taking like really long Boats. ship journeys and like <laughs> trains. Yeah. And so that was kind of out of the question. Though, I mean, that seems in character for him. Yeah. But at any rate, after Flashpoint and they'd finished promoting those two singles, he was no longer a Rolling Stone. So they had to find a new bass player. What happened was, as with most uh, Rolling Stones albums, Mick and Keith got together to jam on new songs and new ideas, put together a template of tracks that they thought were worth working on and finishing. 
In this case, the pre-production sessions happened with just the two of them plus Charlie in Barbados. I don't know why Woody wasn't able to make it, but... But did the auditions come before production started? they started the pre... I don't really have my timeline strictly accurate here. This is all 1993, and there wasn't a lot of public announcement or activity about this. But it's. I think the, the order of operations was they did pre-production, decided they wanted... They had enough for an album, and then they auditioned bass players after that before doing another round of pre-production at Ron Wood's home studio in Ireland. Given this is a really well documented album as far as bootleg material yeah. goes, so and studio outtake bootlegs, yes. So you can kind of see that this was a probably a very long process, mm-hmm. all told. Yeah, so Windmill Lane was the studio in Dublin where U2 had done a lot of their recording, and it was just sort of the best studio in the country at that point. So they uh, obviously wanted to do the recording there, but as you say, they had a lot of pre-production to do, a lot of routining the band, arranging, getting the new bass players' parts you know, slotted in with everybody else. Yeah, and somebody posted an interview in Charlie Watts' is The Greatest Drummer of All Time. Oh, yes. Which is... You uh, know, another Facebook group another that we encourage you to join. Somehow took off like crazy yeah. um which i'm grateful for it it, it was an interview with uh, daryl talking and it was on charlie watts's birthday right and which just passed again which just passed we happy, should happy birthday that. charlie and ronnie and woody which is yeah. interesting thank you very much david ward for posting this um daryl said that you know his first instinct was oh mick and keith are the bosses so i better impress them Mm -hmm. but then he thought well if i work well with charlie everything else will fall into place yeah now the only other person as far as i know who was seriously in contention for getting the the job seriously like close to getting it was doug wimbish right but he was obligated to another tour Mm -hmm. or something color probably living color and uh he couldn't make it he did come to the auditions and everybody was pretty happy with it but ultimately you know keith is the one who kind of He's the power behind the throne, but ultimately it was Charlie's decision. Yeah, and I think Keith has said subsequently that that was the best thing he could have done was leave it up to Charlie. Because if the bass player and the drummer aren't locked in, then your band has no foundation. Especially in that kind of music, because Daryl Daryl talks a lot about... He talked about hearing wedding bands do Stones material, and I've noticed this, that like it's a really good band and it's a really good drummer but they don't have the the swerve and the swagger yeah. and cuz cuz he was talking about how Charlie is so good at being consistent and being steady but having this breathing yeah. to the part is the best way I think I can say it. And there's a lot of examples of that all over this record. I think Charlie's drumming is at a very high watermark here. We've talked about how much we love his drum sound on Bridges to Babylon, but a lot of that was to sequences and to strict tempos whereas here I think you get a very good sense of the push and pull that him and Daryl really established as a rhythm section here. This, this one is definitely much more alive. And yeah. there's one thing I'd like to say about the drum sound on this, and that is that they're using, Charlie's using a marching snare on this. Mm-hmm. So it's it's much deeper. Yeah. And they, 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 it's funny that there are a number, I think the first three songs start with a snare right. fill. Yeah. 
and I think that they were all just really into that sound. Mm-hmm. And and this one is we should get to comparing Bridges to Babylon immediately because they're these two are like so huge in my life because of the time that I got into the band and yeah. as I said, no no one told me that they were supposed to suck. So Yeah, I remember taking this well, C D. This was released on C D at the time, and I remember it being in the library and I didn't really know much about the Rolling Stones, but I'd heard that this record was out and I was curious, so I remember checking it out of the library and listening to it in the car. Uh, in the 90s and being really really impressed by it especially by these first three songs like this is an unbeatable introduction to any album but particularly on this album where they're really kind of i mean literally going for the jugular here uh that's a great way to just announce your intentions at the gate with love is strong you got me rocking sparks will, and fly. Sparks will fly so window lane is a neve board i don't know if it's a vintage one or a modern one i'd guess it's if I had to guess, I'd say it was probably more modern, um, maybe a, a Rupert Neve designs. Um, that's speculation. Um, but the differences between Bridges to Babylon, like the Focusrite, Focusrites were also developed by Rupert Neve, but they have a they have a more transparent sound. They have a, a really nice uh, sizzly air to the top end. Sure, they're extremely transparent. They're very clean. Neves are a bit gnarlier much more emphasis on the low and low mid Mm -hmm. a bit of rolling off to the top end um so the difference is i would say like if personally i would say that the production on bridges to babylon is like a gold standard for me but voodoo lounge is somehow kind of more archetypal modern rock production value for me like it's it's and it's not an unattainable sound like to me, the sound of Ocean Way is as much the console as it is that particular room mm-hmm. yeah. and their collection of mics. Whereas Windmill Lane, and it, it not knocking it, it's a great studio. It's one of the best, and it's obviously a very good sounding room. But you can get a version of that sound on your own. Like if I had to mix something, if I had to send something to for reference to, mm-hmm. for somebody else to mix, I'd probably give them voodoo lounge because it's more attainable sure you can get that swampy low mid guitar resonance so i would say both of these records are similar to exile on main street in a number of ways first is a length like when exile on main street came out everyone said oh it's way too long but it's actually cd length Mm -hmm. it's actually ahead of its time in the sense that all 60 some minutes all records became that length yeah the other aspect is that they they're both kind of meandering Mm multi-genre and a bit dark thematically and the though voodoo lounge is a bit it's a bit murkier yeah and it has i think uh qualities about it that harken back specifically to earlier stones recordings so in bridges to babylon the conscious i think effort on their part was to try and tread some new ground explore areas that they hadn't done before whereas here you know, on the back of the very successful Steel Wheels album and then a new lineup entering the picture, I think they wanted to reestablish first principles. So I think it's it's interesting to note that because I think Steel Wheels, oh, uh, Kim's, Chris Kimsey produced that? Yeah. With, with the Stones, obviously. But I think Steel Wheels was criticized for being too slick and too modern, very much like whatever was on the charts the in terms of its presentation, not necessarily in terms of its writing and arrangement. Well, I think the arrangement... Uh, there's an argument to be made that they were ha- keeping one eye on your sort of uh, Springsteen E Street band, like the 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 size of the band and the the full ranginess of the drum and and, and guitar backup is exhausting 
<laughs> length of the tour. Yeah. Yes, it's very much like it's a stadium rock album. And I think uh, Voodoo Lounge is more uh, in the way that your Soundgardens, your Nirvanas, all those people. So are interestingly, though, I, we should mention that because it's one of the only Stones albums that kind of exists only within the language and established vocabulary of the Stones themselves. It's 94, so you'd think, like, normally what they do, Steel Wheels has a lot of elements from 89, Babylon has a lot of elements from 97. Voodoo Lounge is harder to place for me because aside from Suck on the Jugular, there's nothing that really strikes me as being particularly 90s. Yeah. With the exception, I, w- I did notice this last time I listened to it, Things like Out of Tears and Blinded by Rainbows are very much on the adult contemporary, adult alternative yeah, sure. side of things. And that's that's the only concession to it being from the 90s, I think. They could have put out Love is Strong and You Got Me Rock. It's weird that You Got Me Rocking is from 94. Yeah, it seems more like the kind of single that they put out now where like the singles chart is hardly even a consideration anymore, but to announced to people that the stones are back they're touring they've got a new record they have to put out a song like you got me rocking to just establish that this is it's happening get ready and there's a thread there from mixed emotions sure you got me rocking rough justice Mm -hmm. if you can't rock me you know Uh, yeah they're they're all in going all the way up to doom and gloom today yeah Yeah. that would that would be another one they're all in d and they all have a very similar kind of truculent attitude about them Though I think You Got Me Rocking is the best one. Yeah, I, I think we've talked about this before on the podcast, but You Got Me Rocking is not so much a deep cut because it is a live favorite and it was a single, but it it's kind of, in our mind anyway, underrated as a Rolling Stones song. It's, it is because people always complain about it and they still say, I wish they would stop playing their new songs. It's mm-hmm. like You Got Me Rocking is twenty almost 25 years old at this yeah. point. So like, it's here to stay. <laughs> uh, but should we say Love is Strong? There's a lot to talk about with Love is yeah, Strong. Yeah, let's start with Love is Strong. Again, not really a deep cut, but we like it. I think, to me, the most iconic performance is the one on that uh, MTV Awards where Mick starts, like, he enters from the audience playing the harp solo um, in the Baron Samdi outfit from the tour, right, with that weird furry hat that he was wearing. Chicken feathers. Chicken feather hat, yes. Um, But this is great. There's a single mix, which I think is the Bob Clear Mountain mix. Um, And then the album one is, I guess, the Don Voss, Don Smith mix so the team of don smith and don voss are you're basically the main go-to people and then there are a couple of other mix engineers who came in yeah clear mountain usually does a large portion of the of the mixing um to this day right uh well i also think it's worth mentioning the video for love is strong yeah directed by david fincher and shot in toronto so it's a great concept it's very simple it doesn't over, it's not overly like, look at these models. It's mm-hmm. not overly look at us pretending to play. Everyone always loves Charlie drumming on the water tower yeah, in New yeah. York. Um, you know, it's it's great because there's concessions to performance and it acknowledges their, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a great visual metaphor for them. They are, they are these enormous, larger than life figures. Yeah, towering over the landscape. Um, and I would also like to say that Mick, 
I don't remember where I read this, but Mick said that the the whole thing with this song was that he sings it an octave lower than he normally does. Yeah. And if you actually, if you do have access to those bootleg mixes, you can hear a mix of Keith singing it in the original octave, which is weird. A, very weird. Like it's one of those songs. And he talks about this in his book where he started it and he had enough of it to like fill out the first verse and the chorus but all the rest of the lyrics and the vibe are really kind of mixed creation. And that's true of a lot of songs on this record. Mm -hmm. And it is them working fairly closely. And the other thing is that he sang it into the harmonica mic. Yeah. So, so it, it, it is a very, yeah. it's a very intimate. Yeah. What I really like about it is it's very, it's very intimate and conspiratorial and, and very seductive mm -hmm. performance. Yeah. And it is not like, interestingly, Voodoo Lounge was criticized for being too much a Stones album. Whereas all I hear now is, why won't they go do something that's like what they did in the 70s? And mm -hmm. arguably, this is more like what they did in this. Like, compared to Black and Blue, sure. this is a much more conservative version of the Rolling Stones sound than the, oh, yeah, and the yeah. Cherry Old Baby. Like, that's yeah. kind of weird. Yeah, I think a lot of the, the disco and the funk stuff, like, although there are lots of funky songs on this record, the... Uh, the self-conscious kind of immersion in the new style is sort of put on the back burner here. I think they're, they're more about like keeping those elements in place, but uh, within the framework of what you'd consider a traditional rocker. And they're also quite isolated. I mean, they, they would have disappeared into Woody's house and window lane for a very long period of time. Apparently, yeah. apparently Keith listened to one song on repeat throughout the entire production process. And mm. that was My True Story by the Jive Five. Mm. That's his whole thing. It's like st staying at exactly this one mental point. And sure. then I have to keep my, Tim already told me I have to keep this to a minimum, but the acoustic like albums worth of material that Keith did. Yeah. On is, his own. Yeah. Is worth the price of admission. And he's going back and doing Rambo and Jack yeah. Elliott. Not that you should pay for bootlegs. We're not encouraging that. No, behavior. definitely don't pay for them. Yeah. Um, and, but you can tell he is going all the way back to his earliest, finger style like folk elements and to mm -hmm. me this is a great example of what you can get when you withdraw from the societal conversation right and withdraw from worrying about sounding contemporary and doing what is what is within you the mm -hmm. inner the inner journey rather than right. like oh look we've got all this new stuff yeah and i think even that title of the album uh the voodoo lounge is to me an image about uh, reestablishing a connection with a folk tradition, you know. Um, supposedly, it's named after Keith's cat. Voodoo. Yeah, the cat just showed up. He found yeah. the cat on the side of the road driving after home a hurricane day. or something like that. It was yeah. like some cat survived this storm and it had entered this, you know. And I assume space. that's why there's so much storm. Yeah. And again, on the bootlegs, well, actually, the storm is on. It's a B side. It's yeah. a B side. The Out of Tears EP. If you can get a hold of that, mm -hmm. is really cool. Like, yeah. Jump on top of me and all that stuff. I'm going to drive. From the Pret-a-Porter yeah. soundtrack. 
<laughs> How that happened is worthy of its own podcast. Yeah. But uh, let's uh, we've talked. We just let's go to Sparks Will Fly then. Yeah, sure. So Sparks Will Fly again. It's a Keith composition originally, and Mick wrote all those amazing lyrics, uh, including uh, the, reference to sodomy, which he is swears. Yeah, he says a bad word. Which the, apparently even took Keith aback. It was so unexpected. Well, uh, this came out of a fight with Jerry Lee Lewis. Apparently. Oh, really? Yeah. The story is that uh, Old Killer and, yeah. and Keith were hanging out and you know keith likes to record everything and yeah. they're, they're jamming around horsing around and uh jerry apparently got really upset that this wasn't actually making a real album that right. this was just kind of jamming somebody grabbed a, a burning like branch of a tree mm-hmm. and like whipped it at the other right which is not out of character he once tried to run over liberace jerry lewis so like <laughs> that's you know it's i, I have no problem believing yeah, there's this. a reason he has that epithet so apparently the uh, he's wanted in all 50 states yeah uh that 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 sparks will fly image right. came out of that particular fight which is very kind of funny to think of these old withered men yeah. having a, <laughs> coming to blows <laughs> but this this also i think a lot of people criticize this song for that very reason for being so over the top and the the lyrics being kind of dumb and ever but like I actually think it's flying so fast. The groove is so hot. It's It's got to be over the top in response to that. And also the bridge is amazing. I had a good sniff around. Mick That's is so a, good. I've said this before. Mick writes the best bridges. Yeah. He writes really good bridges. Yeah, well, I just want to note one more thing, which is I have the original CD out in front of me now because I, I went back and subsequently bought my own copy after rating the, the library. public library. <laughs> um, but on the, the lyric page for Sparks Will Fly... Uh, Mick and Ronnie are kind of like making faces at the camera. And then on the opposite page, Charlie is kind of looking at them askance, which I think kind of <laughs> sort of sums up the vibe of the whole record there. <laughs> that's, that's definitely uh, the, the pictures in on the inner sleeve. Is, is, that, is that infrared film? I don't know, but it's like super saturated red. And yeah, Charlie's looking very bemused. But the yeah, the uh, the lyrics have to match the mood of the music. But yeah. there are times where you don't have to do that. But I, I definitely think in this kind of thing, if the if the if the words were overly self conscious and sensitive, that wouldn't make a great deal of sense. Right. So, so and then we have uh, the first Keith lead vocal which is the worst. Uh, it's a ballad. Uh, it is very much in that folk kind of finger style. Uh, tradition that we mentioned and uh, I think as we said on the last podcast he started playing it live again just this year for the first time in about 24 years so it that's creeps no well no no he did it on the bigger bang tour oh as well and, right. and uh Tim Reese did a, a soprano saxophone solo in hmm. place of the fiddle but you can really t- I think this is the first one uh, like Keith writes his a lot of his songs in the studio on the fly and sure. if I were a millionaire I would do that too because <laughs> It's extremely time-consuming. Yeah. You have to sort of... And and there's a lot of this on the bootleg material. There's a lot of sort of mumbling your way through the melody until you find a word or two. And then from there, you have to build it again. Yeah. And I think that kind of what they're doing now, which was like doing a bit, going home and retreating to home studios and developing ideas... But to me, that fiddle, it's kind of like the European roots of American folk music right, coming back. Yeah, yeah there's so definitely... that's Frankie Gavin on the fiddle. And uh, I definitely think this is one of Keith's best songs. Yeah. It, it suits his character. It suits his voice. 
and yeah. the the harmony vocal which mick does on the record but bernard has to do live is so great when the two of them are on one mic together it's like great and it's such a good harmony and you know suits the mood very well yeah it's gonna be hard to find criticisms i think on a lot of this record for both of us <laughs> yeah um, uh, ronnie plays pedal steel I think that's Barks Will Fly. He's, he plays the B-Bender. That's what he's credited for as well. So he's he's doing his multitasking thing here again. Yeah, very, um, very versatile. And uh, Chuck's piano part is great as well. Chuck Lavelle does a lot of yeoman service on this record. He was there from uh, the moment they got into Ronnie's house. Uh, he's not at the Barbados session, but all the other 93 recordings he's on. I just want to say, because we kind of did it a bit out of order, Chuck Lavelle talks a lot about the process of writing You Got Me Rocking and how much work it was. And there are alternate versions where they haven't really got the lyrics down. Yeah, and the groove isn't right either. And I also, sometimes I speculate that Mean Disposition is one of those early versions of You Got Me Rocking, mm. because there's a similarity in the introductory riff. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, but just while you mentioned Chuck Lavelle, I thought that you can check that online. You can yeah. find that online, but it's totally worth it. So, uh, then we have new faces, which is, uh, a sort of Mick ballad, kind of a m- much different sort of, uh, approach to the ballad style than Keith's. But it's also very much part of the Baroque sixties. Like mm-hmm. it's honestly more authentic in a lot of ways than, then Lady Jane, which I, is good. I'm not. Mm-hmm. I'm not criticizing it, but they finally kind of really nailed it. Yeah. Like they, there's a bit of a, a thing with uh, "Blinded by Love" on Steel Wheels as well, which is an attempt at that. "Blinded by Love" is also a really excellent song. Yeah. And one thing that I think is underrated is the Stones' ability to do composition and to do these very delicate mm-hmm. and um, baroque pieces there's yeah. there's no shortage of that i mean as tears go by it, yeah. like, it's right off the bat and this and and things like blinded by love almost all these ballads are out of really, tears really yeah. good yeah. they're i, they're I mean i would i like them more than things like wild horses i've kind of ruined wild horses for myself by listening to it eight right. million times but yeah the melody of new faces is good like the wordplay where he yeah. has indolent Air St- and insolent stare. Yeah. That's a great rhyme. Like yeah, busting rhymes. <laughs> uh, the bridge. I'd also like to point out that the bridge is also excellent, and it's nearly identical to the bridge of "Don't Stop," which mm. I believe I mentioned at yeah. some other point. The only one of the only regrets I think from hearing those other mixes is that I prefer the like chief, extra the penny chief, whistle, the chieftain style yeah. flute. That's, that's Frankie Gavin as well playing the penny whistle. Uh, incidentally, yeah. He's a multi-talented guy, fiddle and penny whistle. Um, and I think Louis Hardim, the the very great session percussion player, plays shaker on this. And there's a harpsichord. Who does that's that? Chuck, that's Chuck. Chuck. Yeah. So is there... I think Charlie's only playing tambourine on this. That would make sense. Yeah. Because it probably doesn't really need a drum. No. Um, but it's Mick and Keith on acoustics. I don't think Ronnie does anything uh, other than goof around in the background, I would imagine. Thank Guinness. <laughs> You've been listening to Under the Radar, a Rolling Stones podcast about deep cuts and hot cookies. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, like us on Facebook, and send us an email to rollingstonespodcast at gmail.com. Wrap it up, Kiki. Wrap it up, wrap it up. Did you have that we got no ship, brother. Oh, I'm in. How about you? Mine's in there. Are you there? You've never been all there. Let's face it. I can't answer that.
You've answered it twice with one mouthful. This record will be available very soon in your shop, featuring Marks and Spencer's especially reduced version of To My Own Special Effects album. Very nice. I love the sound, just like Gene Vincent. Let's go.